to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast brought to you by the Ann Campaign with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney, hosted by the 4th District. We are 15 days out from the midterms as of this recording. Uh, Justin, midterms just a couple weeks away. Uh, how, how, are you, how are you feeling about things? You know, I'm not exactly sure how to feel. I mean, 15 days out, a lot of things could happen. There, there are a lot of issues, some of which we'll talk about today, that could have an impact on uh, or a final say in what's going on. So I'm just kind of waiting to see what what bubbles up. But it's going to be uh, there's going to be some very close races that we should all keep our eye on. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, a tumultuous next couple of weeks. Again, a, a lot of uh, that tumult we're going to talk about on this week's episode. And then we're going to be providing just a whole bunch of content for folks uh, who, you know, we, we, we have a sense, uh, you, you know, are tuned in for us just for seasons like this. So with the midterms coming up, we're going to be providing quite a bit of content uh, for you, some of which we'll announce uh, in the coming days. But one piece we've already announced, and that is, uh, as a reminder, on November 7th, uh, Ann Campaign is going to be doing a live stream event uh, uh, on the evening of November 7th, which will be uh, an opportunity for us to introduce you to some some friends uh, who are political commentators and to provide sort of the first blush uh, response and analysis of what happened uh, on during the midterm elections the day before. So Justin, I know you're excited about it. I'm excited about it. Uh, for those in Atlanta, they'll be able to join us uh, live in person. But then, of course, we uh, look forward to be joining, uh, be joined around the country by folks through, through the uh, live stream. That's right. So you can join us on uh, you can go to our Facebook page and you can join the live stream and watch the whole uh, back and forth. We're going to have Christians. This is a political Christian political roundtable. So we'll have Christian Republicans, Democrats some folks in the middle and just having a good conversation about what happened during the midterms and also how to move forward from there. One of the things that we're trying to do is not people have people so dependent on what to do the day before, but also be thinking the day after, how can we make sure that the next election is a little better or we have better choices than mm. this one? So we will be giving you some information about the, the elections the night before the vote, but we also want to give you kind of a, a roundup and an overview of how Christians should be thinking after the vote and how to move forward from there. Absolutely. Well, Justin, let's jump in. Uh, we'll we'll cover midterm specific news a bit later, but let's uh, let's talk about the the journalist uh, Jamal Kashishki, uh, uh, who was uh, who is dead. Saudi Arabia finally confirmed, you know, officially that he is dead. 
and has been trying to first sort of behind the scenes. And now they're publicly trying to sort of spin their explanation uh, to the world of what happened. This has brought in obviously the Trump administration, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was uh, on a a plane to Saudi Arabia uh, last week. Uh, and it's it's become a major issue. It's all also provided an opportunity to relitigate the U.S. Saudi Arabia relationship. And so, I guess before digging in too deep here, uh, Justin, uh, what are your kind of? I mean, obviously, it's a it's a heartbreaking situation. This was a a journalist uh, who wrote columns for the Washington Post, uh, some of which were. Uh, critical of Saudi Arabia, uh, and uh, given the, the Saudi Arabian regime, uh, th- there's not a whole lot to uh, to 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 give them the benefit of the doubt on this. That's true. Yeah, this is not a good situation, but it's one that America should certainly uh, act on and make sure that Saudi Arabia is held accountable. Let me give you just a little bit of the facts. Um, Jamal Khashoggi was um, apparently, again, he was a Washington Post journalist. He was a critic of Saudi, Saudi Arabian government, and he was seen walking into the Saudi Arabian consulate in, Inst- in Istanbul, excuse me, Turkey, on no- October uh, second and was never seen again. Now, he had told friends that he thought the Saudi government might be after him just because of how they've been handling dissidents as of late. Uh, but he felt safe at the consulate because he was in Turkey. Even so, uh, he gave his fiance instructions that if he didn't return out of the building that she should contact. I think it was an advisor to the president of Turkey. And I think she did so. Um, now, he didn't return. So Saudi Arabia officials initially said that uh, he left the building safely. But when the video didn't show that, they finally had to admit that he had died. And now they're saying it was a terrible mistake, but it was a rogue operation that no top officials in the Saudi government had anything to do with it. Uh, they're saying that his death was a result of a fight that broke out inside of the consulate uh, and then that he was rolled up in a rug and give handed over to an operative to be disposed of. Uh, Turkish officials say that they have audio and actually have played the audio supporting allegations that he was actually tortured before being kill- killed. I believe they've also turned over pictures and the names of some of the um, of some of the Saudi agents who were part of this whole uh, interaction. And and as you alluded to, uh, sadly, this isn't all that surprising coming from Saudi Arabia, uh, who isn't known for their veracity. So it's not like we can take their word for it. But they do happen to be a United States ally. Um, And according to the World Report um, from some human uh, human rights organizations, uh, they've been 
known for doing this type of thing quite a bit. Uh, they've been known for targeting uh, women and Christian and just peaceful dissidents who have disagreements with the Saudi government. They do not take uh, that lightly, and they've been known to do things like this. Um, the Saudi government recently has also led a coalition in Yemen that has killed over 5,000 civilians and injured almost 9,000. They've put up blockades in this war, and their efforts have left, I think, about 17 million million Yemenis unable to get to food. And it's also precipitated a cholera outbreak that's killed 2000 people. Uh, So when it comes to human rights violations, they are no stranger to that. You may be asking, well, then why are we allies with Saudi Arabia? And the the only good uh, answer is it is fairly complicated. I think an honest pragmatist would say that we we need a strong ally in the Middle East. Uh, And there aren't that many great choices. And in view of the fact that we have some really serious issues with Iran, our best choice and best partner. And you can look at some other things that have to deal with us borrowing money and getting money from Saudi Arabia. Um, Some people think that's our best choice. Uh, I'll let you make that decision. But I will say this, um, you know, even though this alliance isn't based on any kind of endorsement of their actions or shared values, we do have to hold them accountable. And I think critics of the administration who are saying they're kind of moving too slowly on this are right, because it looks like you're condoning this type of injustice. Now, this is an individual that passed away. There's been several others and a whole lot of things going on in the Middle East. And so it doesn't necessarily one instance doesn't necessarily push the whole policy. But we need to make sure that we aren't seen as condoning these injustices and that we're taking a real stand to prevent this from happening in the future. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Justin. It, it has just been, you know, the, the alliance with Saudi Arabia did not start with the Trump administration, as you noted. And so I, I we just need to be, I think, uh, m- maybe it is time to reevaluate that alliance. Uh, but let, let's just be careful not to slip into uh, just putting this in sort of a narrative box, which is often what happens in, in politics. It's like, oh, this narrative was building about Trump, you know, liking strong men and Putin and authoritative leaders and all that. And so this this incident, that this, this tragedy uh, gives us uh, like a way to put just add one more thing in that in that box. And it's just a, a, a little more. Uh, complicated than that. Uh, so, so that would be my first point. Just the second point would just be uh, Saudi Arabia is perhaps one of the most skilled countries at diplomacy, particularly cultural diplomacy. And so some of y'all m- might remember uh, seeing the crown prince of Saudi Arabia on American television like all the time for like a good week. He was on 60 Minutes. He was doing all kinds of interviews. Uh, and, and that is sort of in, in hindsight, you know, indicative of the kind of uh, cultural influence, especially in halls of power that Saudi Arabia has. And so it's also a good opportunity, I think, to, for us to uh, have a conversation about how uh uh, people with power, especially uh, uh, how how nations are able to buy uh, buy influence in Washington D.C. Uh, I'm 
I'm not sure what what is going to be the fallout from this, Justin. My 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 sense is I'm not sure. Sort of in a big picture view, I'm not sure if uh, now is the best time to uh, insert a whole bunch of change into U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East under this administration. Uh, whether now is really the best time to um, to 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 do a a, a wholesale uh, uh, confrontation with Saudi Arabia. Uh, it has been interesting. Uh, I, of course, President Trump hasn't sent consistent signals on this, but we have seen him say that there will be consequences for this. We saw Jared Kushner today on CNN with Van Jones uh, repeat the same. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of uh, what what kind of pushback Saudi Arabia gets while well, well, not setting the uh, expectation, or at least I don't have the expectation that, w- that we're going to see a, a, a major scale change of how this, uh, of how America engages with Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I mean, ideally we would like to see that. Um, and I hate to use the, it's complicated to seem like we're justifying anything that's going on there. This certainly is not justifiable. They need to be held accountable. Uh, it is though one of many things going on in the middle East and uh, as you as as this kind of plays out, there are a lot of different we do have to realize that there are a lot of different factors that go into that decision. I hope that we're thoughtful about it and are making sure that any ally of ours is uh, being humane. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, uh, the migrant caravan, which, Justin, is one of the most ridiculous stories that I, I remember uh, 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 recently in, in, a, in a season where there are a lot of crazy stories. We'll, we'll break that down for folks uh, and then also talk about uh, a Treasury employee who was charged with leaking uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back with the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, last week, a U.S. Treasury employee was arrested on charges that she leaked to BuzzFeed News uh, multiple transactions, uh, so-called suspicious activity reports uh, uh, to BuzzFeed News. Uh, these uh, suspicious activity reports were related to uh, 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 a former Trump campaign official, uh, the accused Russian agent Maria Butina, uh, and a suspected Russian money laundering entity and the Russian embassy in Washington. Uh, she is out. Um, she was released. Uh, the, the The Virginia resident uh, uh, was released on a hundred thousand uh, dollar bond after she was presented uh, at court. Uh, but this is this is such an interesting uh, story. It, it obviously ties into sort of the questions of collusion, but it also ties in just into this. You know, I'm not sure if it's an increasing trend, but but there 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 certainly have been a number of stories over the last six eight years of. Uh, government officials sort of uh, taking, uh, especially, you know, career employees, uh, military members sort of taking into their own hands um, uh, sort of the, the, the news of the day and sort of taking action uh, based on information that they're uh, privy to. And so uh, Justin, 
what's your what's your take on this? Do you think that this is sort of a uh, uh, do you think the government is coming down too hard on uh, on uh, this woman? Uh, Natalie Mayflower Sowers Edwards is her name. Do you think the government's coming down too hard on Miss Edwards or uh, do you think that the uh, uh, that that she should be prosecuted for this? Yeah, I certainly can't say they're coming down too hard on her. Um, this is a serious violation of public trust. Uh, we're, we're looking at information that was highly sensitive and that was leaked to reporters, which is a federal crime. Uh, so it's nothing to, uh, you know, nothing for us to just kind of gloss over. Uh, and I think it's a very poor response to disagreements with the Trump administration. We cannot let this turn into a banana republic. Uh, and when people are leaking information unauthorized, that puts the country at risk in a lot of different ways. We need people to have the um, to have the expectation that we're going to treat sensitive information how it should be treated and that we're not leaking it out to news organizations uh, just because we have issues. Uh, if you now I say that, but I'll also say that if you feel like you need to be a whistleblower, then be a whistleblower. Right. Because we have a process for blowing the whistle to make sure that our government isn't corrupt and that people within government are being held accountable. There is a very serious process for doing that if that's what you're trying to do. But if you're being a not you're staying anonymous and you're just leaking information to the press to get a story because you have an issue with the Trump administration. I'm sorry, but I think that is the wrong way to go about it. I think if that's continued or if you look at people in government thinking that's OK, then we really undermine uh, what's going on in government. We have laws, whether they be our sunshine laws, whether they've been our open, you know, our open information laws that are supposed to allow people to get the information they need. We do not need unauthorized leaks in order to make that happen. Unauthorized leaks actually hurt government and they hurt the mechanisms that we can use to help people and hold government accountable. So, again, if you want to be a whistleblower, then be a whistleblower. Go through that process. Do not anonymously release information. And so I'm hoping that this arrest uh, sends a message to other government employees that might be considering this. It's not something that we should do. I never uh, glory in the fact that someone gets arrested. But I think this was necessary because it's a serious issue and people are not going to take it seriously unless they know there are some serious consequences. I'll say this. We're looking at a federal cl- crime, which is a big deal. Um, she gets out and it, this brings up another issue to me, which I'll kind of push in here. You have people that are accused of a lot less that are still in jail and somehow somebody accused of such a large crime is actually out of jail because they have more money. I thought that's a point we could make also. That's absolutely a point, a point we should uh, be able to make here. Uh, And we know that there are uh, uh, several efforts at the state level to address that issue. And I know many of our candidates uh, have been uh, have been campaigning on uh, cash bond issues. Uh, And yeah, just I I agree with you on on the employee. I think it's just um, especially given the fact that, uh, you know, what was involved here, that this seems to be, you know, pretty explicitly political as opposed to exposing, you know, policy uh, corruption or misuse of taxpayer dollars or or something like that. Uh, um, And so uh, on on a broad scale that the, the motive seems to be exposing sort of Trump campaign 
uh, activities, which which I think is in a different, you know, a different category. Uh, let's let's transition, Justin, to uh, this this migrant caravan issue. Uh, this was just raised, sort of, over the last uh, last few days, uh, and uh, it seems to me to be uh, a, a, a midterm ploy. Seems to me to be a way to uh, to to uh, raise the profile of you know this immigration crisis in a way that will benefit Trump and his allies, but. Uh, Let's kind of break it down f- for folks a, a bit. So uh, basically, we have uh, there are uh, migrants who have been making their way from Central America, escaping the uh, violence and utter desperation that is uh, that is plaguing that uh, that region of the world, and they have been making their way up to Mexico. And uh, on Sunday, they resumed uh, sort of their travel, uh, arriving in Mexico with with, with the idea that they are uh, uh, making their way to the States and that we're going to have, I believe some counts have it at 7,000 migrants um, sort of trying to make their way across our border. Uh, The president has uh, just today has suggested that among them are quote unknown middle middle easterners who are mixed in with the caravan he told press that if they would uh if they would uh send reporters uh in with the caravan and you know i almost hate using that word you know it's just such a uh it, 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 it's it's one of those words that sort of gets in your head and describe i mean these are just these are just people fleeing violence but uh he said the the president said if uh if news organizations would send folks they'd find that there were middle easterners and terrorists and ms-13 mix it up with this group of course cnn has reporters there has found no middle easterners in central america making their way up through mexico uh but but just i mean let's let's just call call this for for at least for what it seems which is uh republicans have a v- probably a very difficult day uh ahead of them in a couple of weeks and are doing all they can to uh give their base reason to turn out to at least uh uh, uh stem their losses especially on the house side uh but this is a really sad way to do it which is basically preying on people who have already been preyed on uh by the violence and bad actors uh where, where they're where they're fleeing from uh what 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 do you think about all this do you think that this is uh political or or uh do, do you uh or, or or do you have a uh, do you think that this is something that we need to be looking at from a from a homeland security standpoint 
No, I don't think it's a homeland security issue from what I can tell. Now, obviously, I'm not down there, but from the reports I've heard, it doesn't seem to be a homeland security issue. Um, And the president does seem to be exploiting it to uh, rally his base. And he's been making these statements at rallies to get everybody fired up and the pictures and all the stuff that we've been seeing on (laughs) some some of these political shows have been. Just not helpful, because I think, as you noted, you know, Honduras is one of the most violent countries in the world. And so it's no uh, no wonder why people would be trying to escape from that sort of situation. And uh, I hope, you know, these people are treated in, 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 a, in a humane way wherever they end up. You know, these folks have been walking, from what I understand, for 10 days through Honduras and Incredible. Guatemala all the way to Mexico. Um and so they kind of are gathering uh, in Mexico and trying to decide what they're going to do from there. Should they split up? Uh, initially, Mexico didn't let them through. And then some of them went over the water on rafts um, and Mexico saying, I think 150 of them can seek asylum. Trump is threatening to cut off uh, aid to, to several uh, several of these countries. And it's, it's just becoming a big, a big show um, that's not helpful to anybody especially those in the situation. So if aid were cut off to El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico, does that really help with the immigrant problem? Uh, Does that help solve the issue, especially in countries that may not even have the resources to make it happen? Um, So I I wish the, you know, the rhetoric rhetoric around this would, would stop. I don't think our president is doing anybody any favors by how he's dealing with this. Um, so let, let's hope it gets a little better. But again, 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 I'll say this. That's another reason, uh, whether this is kind of overblown or not. It is another reason that we need comprehensive immigration reform. And this is something that we've talked about on this show over and over and over. Uh, we need comprehensive immigration reform so that immigrants traveling here know exactly what to expect. Uh, so that when they make that calculation to come here, uh, they can know what what to expect. Are they going to get in? Are they not going to get in? It shouldn't be based on ad hoc criterion or anything that is made up as we go. Um, and whatever our policy is, it needs to be for first and foremost humane and it needs to right. be thoughtful. But I'll also say this. And we've said we both said this before, Michael, calling for open borders is not a policy, though. Uh, it's not it's I think it's irresponsible. And honestly, it's counterproductive because it keeps us from having a real debate. It's an unreasonable uh, stance to take. Uh, it also doesn't solve the problems that undocumented workers run into and the dangers and exploitation that they face once they get here. So if you really and I'm not questioning any, anybody's uh, uh, intentions, but if you really want to help the people that you're saying you want to help a comprehensive, reasonable reform or policy or proposal is where you want to start, not just shouting open borders, which is never really going to be considered. And the people that are that need the help are left in the same situation. Let's get this done. And I think it's incumbent on both sides to really push for something that's reasonable, humane uh, and thoughtful. Yeah, you said something really important, which uh, I I wish we could point out to more people. And for those of you listening who, you know, may be concerned about this issue yourselves or have family members or friends who are concerned about this, Justin, you pointed out that, I mean, President Trump has basically been raising concerns about what what he calls this, you know, caravan of migrants uh, uh, at campaign rallies, you know, like, 
yeah. and on his Twitter. Uh, this is the president of the United States. And if, if, if he really was taking this seriously, if he really thought that this was not a political issue, but something that fell under his duties as commander in chief, as, as the, the, the man uh, sitting in the Oval Office, then you could imagine a whole array of uh, processes that would uh, unfold in order to protect the country, in order to address the situation. I could imagine, you know, this being announced at a, at a uh at a uh, evening uh uh conference from the east room of the white house where secretary of homeland security is flanking him along with uh uh some uh, uh, a democratic leader who they've convinced through briefings that this is a real concern it doesn't even have to be an elected you know there would be some show of uh we're doing this for the country not as a political issue of 15 days before uh before an election but we haven't seen any of that and so not even you know it used to be that some of the things i just laid out would be done uh in order to uh in order to try and mask something that was political and you know that would be something to critique by itself uh uh but they're not even going through what you would expect a responsible government and a responsible executive to go through uh, if he actually took his own word seriously. And and that's what's uh, that's a really frustrating aspect of this, which is that he's willing to put things like foreign aid cuts and use terms like national emergency as a way to just amp up fears and manipulate people two weeks out from the election. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the transparency, the the sort of uh, naked uh, sort of uh, self-interest behind this is just very frustrating when there are real lives uh, at stake that are being used as political, political pawns. That's right. I mean, I, I think you stated it, it, it all. This is this is a serious situation and needs to be treated as such, not used as a uh, political ploy to, to help somebody out during the midterms. These are children. These are women that are going through. I mean, they walk for 10 days. Some of these people. Could you imagine? Uh, yeah, that's 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 crazy. And um, we, we need to we need to reach out and make sure that on at each step, you know, people are trying to help them because honestly, it, you know, it's not, you know, it's hard to to help all these people at once when they're coming in. There's no plans for them and things of that nature. That's not a situ- easy situation to be in logistically or any other, you know, based on resources or any other way. But we have to make sure that we're doing our best, that we're working with these other countries. And if they need to be held accountable, because I, I mean, there there is signs that maybe some of these other countries could have done more. Right. As these people made their way. And so if we need to have those conversations, let's have them. I'm not I'm not saying that we need to act like those things are happening, but let's do it in good faith and not based on our political interest. Yeah. All right. We're going to take the last break of the show when we get back. Uh, We're going to have another week before midterms to to uh, uh, to give folks a preview. But let's let's talk about where uh, where things stand uh, now, two weeks out. Uh, We'll do that when we get back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, Justin, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, And 
again, we're 15 days out as of this recording from the midterm elections. Uh, quite a bit can change between now and then, but early voting in many states has already started. Uh, and and really things are starting to settle. We're starting to get something of a picture of the range of uh, outcomes that can happen uh, on election day. Uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll showed that Democrats hold a nine point advantage for the midterm elections. Uh, the the poll also showed that sort of unprecedented enthusiasm is fueling both parties. And so this is going to be uh, potentially a, a high turnout midterm elections. So I'll be interested to see that proved out on election day. And Democrats still look to be in fairly strong position uh, in the House, which would be the sort of historical norm for uh, a party out of power, the, the midterm of a uh, of a president's first term, uh, uh, the opposition party usually gains seats. And right now, it looks like uh, they'll they'll be able to take back the House. Though I'll note that a lot of these races that this is going to depend on are three five point races, uh, and so you know just the slightest change in momentum. Uh, could could mean losing ten seats by a point or two uh, that that could keep Democrats from uh, from taking back the House in the Senate. Uh, most uh, reports believe that uh, Republicans uh, are likely to re- to keep the Senate. Uh, Five thirty eight shows that uh, Republicans have. Uh, a seven in nine chance of keeping control of the Senate. And so folks might be asking, well, uh, how could Democrats be poised to take back the House and be up 9% on a generic ballot, which basically just means uh, asking people whether they prefer a Democrat or a Republican in Congress without uh, naming candidates because it's a national poll. So you might ask, how could that be the case? But the Senate be in a different position. And we've said this on the show before, but uh, just as a reminder, the Senate races that are up in 2018 in two weeks are the same Senate races uh, that were decided last uh, in 2012, when President Obama was on the ballot, uh, and that led to victories in uh, pretty conservative uh, states that are now uh, red. So, for instance, Barack Obama won Pennsylvania in 2012, uh, but uh, in t- 2018, Pennsylvania's uh, or in 2016, Pennsylvania went red, and so uh, that race might look different. Uh, and so uh, right now, sort of the conventional wisdom is that Democrats are uh, likely to take back the House, like uh, Senate is likely to remain in control of Republicans, and uh, Democrats do look like they'll pick up quite a few governors, uh, uh, gubernatorial seats, um, though uh, it's it's important to note there that that's largely because they uh, had so few of them to start with. And so uh, that's a bit of an o- overview of the broad map of where things stand right now. But, but Justin, how do you feel both parties are doing with their sort of, we're kind of in closing argument phase of this thing. 
Oh, it's, it seems to be a lot of chaos. It seems to be a lot of allegations going against the other side. They're doing this. Uh, the other is doing that. You know, you wish it was based on policy. And there are some policies around here somewhere. But a lot of it is just kind of getting people riled up because of threats that are that are close to them or, or near them. And unfortunately, that's really where our political uh, system is at right now. One thing that I'm watching closely is uh, the president's uh, favorability rating, which is actually going up right now. So that could have an impact on the midterms. Again, I've made my prediction on here uh, several weeks in a row. I do think that the uh, Democrats will take the House. I think the Republicans will keep the Senate just because they had such a huge advantage in the Senate anyway. This isn't out of the norm. I mean, it, it'll be played up as you know historic, and it, it certainly has consequences. But as you said, this is usually what happens: is the the other side's going to gain seats when you that the side opposite of the president is going to gain seats during that midterm. That's kind of how it goes. We'll see what happens, but I, I'd like to hear a lot more policy and a little uh, less fear tactics. But, uh, you know, that's just wishful thinking at this point. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this thing closes. I'm paying special attention uh, to uh, to the race in uh, Tennessee. It's going to be very interesting to see if uh, if Bredesen's going to be able to beat Marsha Blackburn. Uh, it's I think the strength of the Bredesen name is proving to be uh, a, a potent factor. Uh, there was a poll uh, that came out from Vanderbilt, your your alma mater, uh, uh, that showed uh, a Bredesen up by a point or two while the uh, Democratic candidate for governor, Carl Dean, who's actually a a, a, a pretty strong candidate. Uh, he was actually one of my law professors in, in law school. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so very strong candidate. I remember him. He's done quite a bit of faith outreach. I remember him speaking at the, the Q conference a couple of years ago uh, in a different environment. You know, he might be a really strong contender, but he was down by, by a, uh, 12 points. Uh, And so it's going to be interesting to see if folks will be able to uh, will be willing to split their ballot by voting Republican in the governor's race and Democratic in the Senate race. And then on the flip side, uh, uh, Andrew uh, Gillum is doing very well in Florida. Uh, CNN has a poll with him up 12. Now that seems to be a bit of an outlier from uh, some of the other polls that show a tighter race, but uh, Gillum is an interesting candidate to watch and he will be someone who will be in sort of 2020 VP, if not uh, presidential talk if he manages to uh, win this race in a red state uh, for for governor. And then obviously just in that race in your home state between Stacey Abrams, uh, uh, the, the, the Abrams race uh, is, is going to be an interesting one to watch as well. Uh, Early voting has started. Republicans have a bit of an edge in early vote, which goes so much against Democratic sort of rhetoric about early vote, but uh, but is not totally uncommon. But it's going to be interesting to see how that race closes. Uh, It's already been a pretty, pretty bitter fight. But are are there any other races, Justin, that you you have an eye on? I mean, you you hit you hit my big one. I was watching Tennessee and what what Bredesen is going to do. It will be 
interesting to see Tennessee with a with a uh, Democrat uh, senator. So I'm going to keep watching that one closely. And of course, Georgia, uh, the Georgia gubernatorial race, a lot going on. Again, we talked last week about the allegations of voter suppression, which I think uh, it was set up because Kemp probably should have considered stepping down from his position as, sec- as secretary of state. But on the other end, some people would say, well, if there's voter suppression, why are you know, early voting up. Why is early voting up so high? So who knows? Uh, I think make sure that, you know, check in, check with the secretary of state and others to see that you are registered. If, if you're not and you're on hold, you can still vote. And we told you that last time you can still vote if you bring a photo ID. Uh, so. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, This is going to be exciting. As you said at the beginning of this episode, uh, church politics and the and campaign will be bringing a lot of midterm content. We will have a Facebook live session called the night before the vote on November 5th, uh, just to go through all these different races, giving you not telling you who to vote for, but certainly giving you some information about the candidates and some of the big races. Uh, And then at, you know, the night after we'll be doing again, a, a, Christian political roundtable, letting you guys know what's going on. So a lot going on here. Be informed. Look up your candidates. Know who you're voting for. Know where your uh, polling uh, location is at so that you don't get caught up on the day of and, you know, something happened and you don't vote. If you can vote early, then vote early. But be engaged. Be heard, because this is an important election any way that you slice it. Absolutely. Well, well, folks, it, it, we're, we're excited for the, the coming weeks, excited to uh, be tracking this all with you. Uh, and so we'll be back next week with our last uh, church politics episode before the midterm elections. Uh, until then, have a blessed week. Thanks for listening. And, uh, and it, it's going to be a wild ride, but we're glad to be doing it with you. Thanks. Take care, church folk. Fellas and slums together with inhabitants. It's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.